True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are in the media right now. Before we get into today's minisode, I'd like to give a shout-out to our newest Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Yana Lawrence and Vuyukazi November. Thank you so much for your support. It is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support the show through either Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to keep the show growing and improving. In today's Spotlight Minisode, I'm going to discuss three very specific cases that are in the media at the moment, all of which have something in common. And they caught my eye because they seem to go against the most common narrative we usually see in sparsal murder cases. All of the cases I'm going to discuss today are either still being investigated or they're waiting to be heard in court. So it is important to remember that every person I refer to is innocent until proven guilty. And I'm only using information that is already in the public domain to avoid damaging any cases. In spousal murders, the narrative we've become sadly familiar with is that of a husband killing his wife, either after years of domestic violence or when the marriage breaks down and, in many cases, the husband takes on another partner and doesn't want to go through a divorce for various reasons. We've seen this narrative in the murder of Jill Packham, Susan Roder, Mandy De Silva, and many others. A less common narrative is when it happens the other way around, and when the wife kills the husband. Recent events, though, have made me wonder if it's really that uncommon. Anyone that's listened to this podcast for a good amount of time will know that I'm a big fan of the book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Farber. I even interviewed her at one stage. The book is all about female killers and how they are often quite different from male killers in modus operandi and motive. According to Tanya's book, female murderers make up only 5% of all convicted killers globally. But those are all female killers. So women who kill with male partners, commit stranger murders or kill their own children. What seems to be even rarer is the concept of women killing their husbands. In the book of the nine cases covered, only three of those perpetrators killed their husbands, Daisy Demelka, Najwa Peterson, and Siliwe Mbokazi. What I really find interesting is that if you break it down further, only one of those perpetrators actually committed the murders themselves. The other two hired or otherwise procured people to do it on their behalf. And while no crime is worse than another, I actually feel like those types of murders 
are more cold-blooded than one that's committed in the heat of the moment with little planning. It seems to be a trend that when women decide they no longer wish to have their partners around, they hire hitmen to take them out. Of the cases I'm going to talk about today, it's alleged that this was the case in all but one. Also in all but one, the murders took place between two and six years ago, and only now the female partner is being identified as having been involved. Of course, it's fantastic that police are still working these cases so hard after six years, but it does make me wonder how many women are actually getting away with murder, quite literally, because they've done a really good job of covering their tracks. So let's get into today's Spotlight Minisode, Killer Wives. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The first case I'd like to talk about I first mentioned in a Spotlight Minisode last month. And that was the murder of 28-year-old Raymond Papapaflu. On the 5th of October, at around midnight, police were alerted to a home invasion and murder that had taken place on a farm between Stoffbach and Groblesdal. By the time they arrived on the scene, they found that local farm security units and community policing forum members were already on the scene. It was soon determined that 28-year-old Raymond Papapaflu, or Pups to his friends, had been asleep when he had been shot five times. He died almost immediately. The young man had been a foreman on the game farm on which he and his wife lived. Reports in the immediate aftermath of the case were confused and held little information about the crime itself. But as the case occurred within a time period where several other murders on farms had occurred, it was assumed by many to be a farm murder. For many, though, the pieces simply did not fit together. Simone Papapaflu had stated that she'd been asleep on the couch in the lounge of their home when she'd been awoken by hearing five shots inside the bedroom where her husband was sleeping. She said that she'd grabbed her own firearm and fired seven shots in the direction of the room, allegedly to chase off the perpetrators. She had then found her husband deceased. When police arrived, a canine unit was dispatched in an attempt to track the perpetrators, but they'd had no luck. It was not long before members of the public started asking questions about the crime. Some references were even made to the Oscar Pistorius case, where he shot through his own bathroom door and killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, after claiming he thought she was an intruder. People who were at the scene would later say that elements of the scene did not seem to fit with the idea that someone had broken in to commit a robbery and ended up killing Raymond. Among these inconsistencies was the fact that Simone's handbag was left untouched on the kitchen table. The safe keys were laying in full view, 
and were not used to access the safe. And one individual said that there were no footprints leading away from the home. The strangest element seemed to be that Simone and the dog that was sleeping with her on the couch were left unharmed. The way the house is set up, the perpetrators would have had to have gone through the lounge where she was sleeping to get to Raymond. Rumours were rife in the town, and also on social media, and Simone's supporters hit back, saying that it was impossible for a woman to have done the damage that had been done at the house. Police investigations continued, and then almost three weeks after the murder, an arrest was made that would turn this case on its head. In the last week of October, police arrested a 23-year-old woman in Kempton Park. Her name is Patricia Ray Lee Smith. It soon emerged that Patricia was well known by both Simone and Raymond, and had worked with the couple before moving from Kroblesdal to Kempton Park. Pictures dating back as far as 2015 show Patricia in photographs with the couple. The police described Patricia as a friend of Simone Papapaflu, but those who had believed Simone to have been involved in her husband's murder from the beginning soon started to say that they were not just friends, but actually romantically involved. Patricia Smith has been charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder and has appeared in court for initial proceedings. This week, Smith's lawyer, Oka Boerta, confirmed that Patricia and Simone were indeed in a relationship. He has denied, however, that Smith was involved in Raymond's murder in any way, and says that there is evidence that she was in Kempton Park when the murder occurred. He also says that police are trying to intimidate Smith in order to flush out the real killer. Police have not publicly confirmed or denied that there was a romantic relationship between the pair, but they have said that more arrests are imminent. Simone Papapaflu has not been arrested as of the release of this episode, despite allegedly offering to hand herself over to police. The narrative that is being presented in this case is that Simone and Patricia conspired together to have Raymond killed. Whether this is correct or not, and whether they hired other parties to actually commit the murder, is not yet clear. Simone's name was actually not mentioned in any of the initial articles reporting on Raymond's death. She also does not have a social media profile. I did manage to find a Facebook page representing a bull terrier breeding business, which appears to be run by Simone. It is important to note that police have not yet confirmed or denied that Simone is a suspect in this case. So only time will tell what the true story is, and speculation is likely not to be helpful. I can say that police don't take arresting and charging someone with murder and conspiracy to commit murder lightly, so there must be some significant evidence linking Patricia Smith to the crime. Whether she is actually guilty, or whether she acted alone, and for what reason, will only become clear as the investigation progresses 
and Smith is taken to trial. I will keep an eye on this case and keep you updated. The second case of this nature that has recently made headlines after a suspect was arrested is the vicious murder of 44-year-old Johann Pretorius. In June 2019, Pretorius arrived at a property owned by his father-in-law in Nigel. He and his wife, Corby, and their young daughter lived on the property. When he got out of his vehicle to open the gate, he found that the gate had been secured by several pieces of wire and, presumably in the process of trying to remove these closures, he was attacked with a pickaxe. He was struck on the head and on his body several times and attempted to flee from the attacker, but he was dragged back to his vehicle and placed inside it before the vehicle was set alight. Johann's body was found by a passing security company that spotted the vehicle fire. He was just outside the vehicle when he was found, indicating that after the fire had been started, he had again attempted to flee, but had succumbed to the head wounds and severe burn injuries. Nothing had been taken from the scene, and again members of the public and media labelled the crime a farm murder, with the Buddha Crisis Axi, or Farmers Crisis Action, website, claiming that the crime had clear indicators of being an assassination, and further asking whether the crime was part of what they call a slow genocide. Other similar websites described the murder as being committed by terrorists who had killed Pretorius in a racially motivated hate crime. The police investigation actually revealed a very different story, and shortly after Johann's murder, police arrested his 21-year-old friend, Adam van Staden, who would go on to confess to having murdered the man. Johann's family, including his wife, Corby, expressed shock at the young man's involvement in the murder. Little information is available on the trial of Adam van Staden, as it would likely not have been sensational enough for the media coverage. But as van Staden was found guilty, and his sentencing drew near this year, the case has taken yet another turn when van Staden decided that he wasn't going to take all the blame for the crime anymore, and he started to reveal more about what had actually happened that night. Adam van Staden, facing sentencing and with little to lose, has claimed that he was in a relationship with Johann's wife, Corby, and that he, as well as his friend, 23-year-old Jacques Petzer, murdered Johann after conspiring with Corby in order to get the man's life insurance money. Fifteen months after Johann's murder, his widow Corby Pretorius and Jacques Petzer have been arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Once all three trials are over, we will have more information about exactly why Corby was not tied to this crime initially and what the motive was initially presumed to have been for von Staden's involvement. Now, there's something about this and the previous murder that I discussed that bugs me, and that is how quickly these cases were labelled farm murders. 
Of course, that label is issued in the public domain and not by police, nor does it affect the investigation in any way, because whether a murder occurs on a farm or in a suburban setting, investigation methods are the same. What really bugs me about this sudden jump to judgment is that the only people benefiting from it are the perpetrators, because attention is being pulled away from them and placed on some random group of invisible people. It also seems to be clear that the more these labels are being attached to murders, the more people are using that to put a mask on their crimes. This happened initially with the Hrikwistat murders as well. In fact, the names of the Steenkamp family, who were actually victims of a domestic homicide by Don Steenkamp, appear on the wall of remembrance for victims of farm murders. Now, no one is denying that people living on small holdings and farms are increasingly becoming the victims of violent home invasions, which involve elements of robbery, rape, torture and murder. But if we proceed to start combing every single murder that occurs in a farm setting with the same brush, we're going to continue giving perpetrators like these an easy out. I commend the police in both this case and the Papapaflu case for not being blinded by the labels and narratives being touted about and for actually investigating these cases thoroughly and uncovering the true perpetrators. Again, I'll keep an eye on this case as it progresses and keep you updated. The third case I want to discuss today did not happen on a farm. It happened in Strand, just a few streets down from where I live. On the 22nd of January 2016, police were called to a double-storey house in Parklands, Bloberg. They found a 45-year-old man, Marius Boerter, deceased from a gunshot wound to the chest. Also on the scene was the man's fiancée, Tosca van Weyck. The woman had an injury to her head, and she said that she and Boerter had argued that day, and he'd hit her in the head with his firearm, and then gone to the upstairs bedroom and committed suicide. She recounted that she had heard one shot and run upstairs. She'd tried to get the gun away from Marius, but he had fired two more shots, killing himself. Van Weyck was treated for her injury and then allegedly admitted herself to a psychiatric facility. It's alleged that the shooting took place around 4pm and police were alerted at 6pm. A death investigation is launched into every unnatural death and of course there was no difference in this case, despite claims that the death had been a suicide. Reports that are coming out now show that the police have been diligently working this case for four years, slowly but surely collecting enough evidence to come to the conclusion that was announced last week. The National Prosecuting Authority announced last week that Tosca van Weyck will be charged with murder, the possession of an unlicensed firearm, and defeating the ends of justice in the death of her fiancé. Since this announcement, 
it has emerged that either the couple or Tosco herself had already been the subject of an unspecified investigation not related to the murder, both before and after Marius's death. Among the evidence that's been revealed in charge documents is that the day after Marius's death, an email was sent from his computer to his bank requesting that money be transferred to another account. When the bank employee called Marius's phone to find out more information about his request, she was informed that he was deceased. She then reported this to the police. Marius's insurance company also reported receiving a call from an unnamed person one week before his death to confirm the details of his life insurance policy. It is also alleged that an unnamed person made incessant inquiries during the week after his death to find out when his death certificate would be available. When approached for comment by the media, Tosca van Veik said that she'd been made aware of the charges against her and described herself as being an emotional wreck. Marius's family have said that they've been unable to accept the scenario that had been painted around his death in 2016, and they had always had full trust that the police would resolve the matter. They've also allegedly handed over evidence to the police that may help to prove a motive for the murder. Again, I'll continue to follow the progress in this case and keep you updated. And that is it for today's minisode. I do hope that you found this foray into a different narrative in domestic crimes interesting. If you enjoyed this minisode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always... Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.